we just decided to go for the subject and grab it right by the throat. So the series is called Just Don't Talk About Money because ironically, that is what we're talking about. The beautiful, wonderful thing for me serving as your pastor is not once have I had anybody say, hey, don't mess things up by trying to talk about money. And had anybody said that to me, I'd say, listen, uh, I... I just have to pay attention to what Jesus talks about. And like it or lump it, he talks a lot about this subject because he has good things to offer in help to his people. So through this four-week series, today being the last, the very first week, again, going for the throat, we decided to call the message, Jesus loves Christians who don't tithe. And that was in case there were some people that thought, I am never going to change my view on anything. I'm not going to change my practice on anything. And now I wonder if this is a love issue or a salvation issue. No, it's not. And if that's you, you are always loved by Christ. You are always loved by our church family. However, again, God in his goodness invites us into thinking about a lifestyle that's not about clutching, but is about hands that are open, able to give, able also to receive. The second week of the series, my father-in-law, Brent Cantillon, was here to speak. And he brought a message called The First and the best, and many of you, especially as you leaf through the Old Testament, and again, finding it echoed all through the New Testament, is this idea that the first and the best of things belong to God. And at the end of the day, it all belongs to God. But in response, and as an act of faith, we give of the first and of the best. Not the second and not the second best. There's something that's tested in our heart, and it's good for us to learn how to give of the first and of the best to God. It belongs to him. Last week, we had another guest speaker, Ron Davis, with us. And really, if there wasn't a title to the message, but we might as well call it the nitty-gritty, we got right down into the biblical details of finances from all types of angles, including looking at wills. And Ron stayed with us and met with 26 different people and couples through the week and helped many people. Some of you are here to pick up your will. At the end of the service, you can do that. If you've missed out on that and you still want to have an opportunity for some of the help that was offered last week, contact our office. There's ways for that help to come to you online. This week, as we conclude the series, if there's a title to the message, it's this. There's no recession in heaven. Has anybody heard the word recession before? I wonder if you heard it last year or coming into this year at all. Uh, depends who you're listening to on the news. Depends who you're following on social media. Depends how close you are to some economists. Um, or political people, you may be bumping up against a word called recession. And it brings about, naturally, in our world, all kinds of different feelings. Uh, just over a week ago, we held a seminar on Saturday morning called Smart Money with Stefan Scott from our church. And as the whole event ended, I asked him one final question. I said, Stefan, I'm going to say one word, and I want you to tell me your response to this word. What's the feeling What's, what do we do about it? And so I said, here's the word, recession. And he gave a perfectly calm answer in that moment. And I don't know how you feel about the word recession, but sometimes when you're around other people who are anchored to Christ and also have good knowledge on how the economy works and all that, and when you bring up the term recession, they don't go into a panic and say, hide, save, sell, all that stuff, and they just say, we're gonna be fine. These things happen in our world, but we're going to be okay. Yes, we'll feel it in our everyday life a little bit, but hang on. Do the, do the faithful things over a long period of time. God's going to take care of you. And to hear his calm response, I think, was helpful to some of the others in the room who might be feeling some of the feelings that can swirl around when there's a word like recession in 
our vocabulary. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Today, uh, and please have your Bibles or your apps handy right now, because we're going we're gonna, to uh, go to several places in Scripture. A lot of times when you hear me teach or preach, I'll anchor everything mostly out of one passage, and we kind of stay in one place. Today, we're actually going to bounce around to several different places, and I want you to have the opportunity to see the Scriptures for yourself. Some of you need to underline some things or circle some things you haven't seen or considered for before, so you can give it more thought in the future. As you're turning to Mark chapter 6, I want to ask you how many of you might remember off the top of your head the first two verses of Psalm 23. First two verses of Psalm 23. Who's got the first words they can shout at me? Wow, very good, very good. The Lord is my... What does it say Not next? I shall... Not want. Second verse. He makes me to lie down in very good. And many of you could carry on through the whole passage. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I want you to have that in mind as we go now to Mark chapter 6. It's, it's, it's as if people in the New Testament knew the Old Testament and wanted to make sure people caught particular thoughts from their historical scriptures as they were shared in the New Testament. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 34. um, Jesus is together with his disciples. A large crowd has formed, and it says this. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. If you're just joining us for the first time, and it says when Jesus landed, he didn't just sort of like land out of heaven on the earth. He was in a ship, and he was crossing over a body of water. He landed on the other side. He saw the people, and he had compassion on them because they were like what? Sheep without a shepherd. It's as if Yahweh was coming near his people, and it's as if Yahweh had the heart of a shepherd, and it's as if the people of God needed to realize, the Lord is my shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Verse 35, it said this, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples, Jesus' disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. It is already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countrysides and villages and find a subway so they can buy themselves something to eat. Now, isn't this how our prayer lives work sometimes? God, I've noticed a problem in the world, so I have some suggestions for you. And I don't think God is uh, opposed to that, but he handles their situation and their suggestion a little bit differently, probably in a way that would make many of us uncomfortable. So Jesus responds, verse 37, You give them something to eat. You want to send them to Subway? How about this? You open a Subway here right now, and you feed them all. Now, we know from Scripture that there's at least 5,000 men there. That is, uh, you know, representing a lot of family units. So there's definitely a crowd of 10,000 or more people gathered together. And the disciples, you can't blame them. They're economists, too. They're saying, listen, this is a tough time. Send the people to go get food for themselves. And Jesus says, no, 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 you feed them. Thousands and thousands of people. How would you feel in that moment? They said to him, and again, this is how we pray sometimes with more information for God as if he doesn't know. They said to him, that would take eight months of a person's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money on bread to give them something to eat? And verse 38, Jesus responds with a question. How many loaves do you have? Isn't it interesting? The need is massive. And he says, well, let's see what we can start with. 
How many loaves do you have? He said, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. That's a terrible offering. <laughs> Here's Jesus. Uh, by the way, I have experience as a church planter, so I'm very sympathetic to the Lord in this moment. When I was church planting, I knew what bad offerings were like. It was, we were trying to pay rent and feed my own family, and we had many bad offerings. And we're like, well, we, I think five loaves and two fish would have been a, uh, an increase. That would be great. Um, so here's Jesus struggling to take an offering. He's got 10,000 people and can only find five loaves and two fish among them. Verse 39, Jesus directed them to have them sit down in groups where? In the green grass. Mark, thank you for dropping that detail in there for us. Why might he include? Ink and um, parchments were not common and easy to come by for ancient writers. And here, Mark decides to just say it's green grass. Why might he be doing that? He's calling on the memory of his Jewish audience. It's as if Yahweh, the Yahweh of Psalm 23 has shown up and is with us. He is our shepherd, and he's caring for us. We will lack nothing. Look, he's even making us sit in green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up two. Can everybody say the word two? Uh, that was okay. Let's try it one more time. Two. Very good. Looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke the loaves. He gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the fish among them, and they all ate and were satisfied, verse 43. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. A few things just to notice in this text as we open today. There are certain streams in church history and Christian history that have taught, for whatever reason, that Christians should deny reality, that this is maybe how we cope. You don't have cancer. That's just what a doctor is saying. And it becomes harmful in many cases for people to deny reality, right? But neither should we obsess about realities that are here on earth, assuming that's the only reality to work with. Does that make sense? And so when Jesus is handling a situation, he's taken a bad offering, he's not denying the facts. At least I don't see him denying the facts. What are the facts here? Big need, small supply. And does he get anxious? What does he do? He says thanks instead. Have you ever had a big need and then God sends some small supply your way to begin with and you say, no, 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 that's not enough. No, I think the heart of God is, I'm, I'm beginning. And so our response should be in those moments, thank you. And Jesus provides a great example. I had you say the word to. In the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, um, the Greek word used there that in this case is, trans and most of your translations would translate it to the word to, is a Greek word, ice. Ice. And most often, in the New Testament, it's actually translated into the word into. And in this case, most translators choose the word to. If we're to go with the thought that it most often in its Greek context means into, that's a helpful thought for us. Jesus has a big need in front of him. He's not denying it. He has a small supply to work with. He's not denying it. So what does he do? He looks into heaven for a greater reality that could overcome the realities that he's facing on earth. Does that make sense? We talked earlier in the service about being a praying people. 
that our prayers are like incense that go up to the Father's throne. When you and I pray, what's happening? The eyes of our heart are helping lead our whole self to look beyond the realities of our world to an unseen realm. This is why Jesus came and taught his disciples, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything Jesus did on earth was taking heavenly realities and bringing them to earth to overcome the realities here. So I think we should follow his example. Don't deny realities around us. Don't be a person that says, oh, there's no recession or there won't be a recession. There might be. But how do we handle recession? I think in the way of Jesus. We face the facts and then we look into heaven and look for realities that are greater than recession. And the question is, is there ever recession in heaven? Jesus seems to have been facing a pretty bad economic circumstance in this moment. And there was a supply from heaven that overcame the realities on earth. I hope that encourages your heart today. Flip over with me now to Romans chapter four. With that in mind, I want you to see something. I didn't hear anybody flip. I know you have apps, but again, some of you have Bibles. I just need to know you're with me here, so at least wrestle the pages, even if you're not going to Romans four. But I suggest you go to Romans four. It's a gift from God to you. Last fall, we did a series called The Story of God and the Five Trees, and it's the story of scripture. It's the story of gospel, and the first tree is the tree of life, and the second tree is a tree of freedom, and this is uh, out of Genesis we find these stories. And then the third tree we find later in the book of Genesis, God wanting to begin a, a restoration or a renewal movement on earth, and so he's looking for someone that he can partner with, that he could start a covenant family with, that he could bless, and they could become a blessing to the whole world. And the tree that we associate with the third tree is the tree that we discover in Genesis called Mamre. And it's where God and Abraham meet. And Abraham, in so many ways, becomes the father of a covenant family that you and I are still part of today. And as we follow our way through the rest of the Old Testament and friends into the New Testament and to all church history and human history since right till this point, what do we find? A God who is faithful, backing it up with his life and his death and his resurrection. He is so faithful. He makes promises to us in covenant. And even when we fail, he is faithful. That's the third tree. It's a tree of faithfulness. It's a beautiful part of God's story. So I want you to have that in mind as we turn to this text, because Romans chapter four reminds us of the story of Abraham. It says this in verse 18, against all hope. Have you ever felt like you've been in a situation like that? Against all hope. I wonder if some of the disciples, when Jesus said, you give them something to eat, and they're thinking there's 10,000 people, it could be eight months' salary for somebody to pay for a subway, and how do we get it delivered here? We don't have DoorDash yet. This is going to be hard. And Jesus sees things a different way. The disciples might have felt it was against all hope. Here's what happened in Abraham's story. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, trusted And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said or promised to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact, this is so helpful to us, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. No offense to anybody approaching that. And Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not, I want you to catch that. The facts were against Abraham, weren't they? Did he deny that? No. But he heard from a different realm a word that had a power within it to overcome realities on earth. 
Verse 20, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. So a recession may come. And what will God do? He will be faithful. He will do what he promised. You and I could get anxious and wound up and obsess about realities on earth. And again, friends, I'm not telling you to deny them. But where's your focus? In news, politics, economists' words? Or is it anchored in something God says? God is faithful. I won't mention a name here, but a former staff member at this church from an era ago or so, who served in our youth leadership, posted this on social media several years ago, and I saved it because I just thought, this is such a beautiful picture of the faithfulness of God. And this is how they wrote it in their post on social media. So I was given this opportunity. The opportunity, however, would require that I have a suit. The suit would require that I have money. (laughs) Then today I went into a thrift store to look for stuff for a youth game where I found a practically new three-piece suit for $15.75. Now, this person had particular dimensions, and these dimensions fit them. It was was fantastic. I get to the till to uh, pay only to find out that this and all other blue tag items are, get this, $1. I know, right? I'm like, deal, but all I have is credit. I hear this lady say, that'll cost them more to process that than you're spending. Here's a loony. So I get home with this free suit. And out of curiosity, I look it up online. And after taxes, the thing is worth $853.86. God is faithful. Amen. And many of you are gathering together in small groups this week or in coffee clubs and DNA relationships that you have. And I encourage you this week, spend some time swapping some stories of God's faithfulness to your life. Has anybody ever experienced a miracle of provision in your life? Let's see your hands wave around. Isn't it wonderful? And so, yes, the world will change around us. It always does. And should we be wound up and worried? Or can we trust? Is there recession in heaven? Or is God faithful? I remember uh, after I had graduated high school, I went off to a school in Alberta for a a one-year experience there. And um, I had saved a little bit of money to work with in terms of uh, tuition costs and life costs and all of that. And I I had picked up a job and Minimum wage at the time in Alberta was $5.55, so I was just raking in cash. I had no idea what to do with all of it. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, did, I had very little money to work with at all. I only had a few hours a week of work, and then school was the rest of the week. And uh, I had had my first job when I was 15, and my parents helped me think a little bit about budgeting and think a lot about generosity and patterns of giving, and 10%, the first and the best, belongs to God. And so that had just been built into my thinking, and I was happy for it. And then I came into the first sort of financial crisis of my own experience. I'm making $5.55 an hour. I hardly have enough money to take care of buying the few little groceries I can afford. And uh, so for several months, I stopped giving. It was a new thing for me to focus on my needs 
and reorient my life around what my sense of lack was rather than who my sense of provision was. And so for several months, I, I just, I, I was clutching to make sure I had enough. And at one point, there was, uh, one point there was a, um, we've got scripture being read, which is okay. Somebody's audio Bible. It's wonderful to hear the Bible. So I do want you in your scriptures, by the way, if you can just turn the audio off, it's okay. It's all good. Um, at some point, the Spirit gently spoke to me. Has anybody had the Spirit speak to them with gentleness before? There are times we feel what feels like condemnation. That is not from God. But when there's conviction, often He speaks to us specifically, and that there's a gentleness to it. We know, ah. Oh. And there was just this gentleness that came to me that, you know what, Mike? You were raised to experience life differently. You were raised to um, trust God differently than I was practicing in that moment. I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to find a way to just start giving again. And at that time, I owed my school $325 remaining tuition. And of course, raking in cash like I was, I knew that's going to be easy for me to pay off, but it, it actually was not. And... Um, I remember the day I went to the bank and I had realized I'm going to get back into giving. And so I withdrew cash so that I could give again. And I saw what I took out and I saw the little that was left and I just thought this is the right thing to do so I'm going to do it. And I began that day returning to giving. What was so fascinating to me was that that same day uh, I received a notification from our, uh, one of the deans in the school and they said I need to meet with you in my office. And so I, worry, you know, I worried as I walked over because I thought this is about the 325 I'm owing. I haven't spoken to them about it for a while. I hope that they forgot, but clearly they remember. And so off I am to talk to them about this. So I sit down uh, at their desk and they say, we need to talk about your um, outstanding uh, amount, $325. I said, okay. And he said, um, somebody anonymously contacted the school the other day and they've sent $300 towards your account. If you wish to receive it, we just need you to sign here. I've never grabbed a pen so fast. <laughs> I, was happy to very, I was very happy to sign in that moment. I thought, $25, you know, that's only five, well, okay, the deductions and taxes and giving all, that's only about 12 or 20 more hours of work and I can pay for this $25 remaining. And so I'm walking back to my dorm room feeling very happy about God's provision in my life. As we did in the day, uh, every one of us would check the mail every day because we all were hoping for another care package from home. And I checked, and no special box or care package in my mailbox for me. But there was a letter for me, and I'm living in Alberta, and there was a letter from ICBC. Now, I didn't own a vehicle at the time. I had no insurance at the time. I hadn't kindly told ICBC, listen, I'm moving to Alberta, here's my new address. I had done nothing of that. And I thought, why am I getting mail from ICBC? Uh, it's probably a bill. They found a new reason why to uh, charge me for something. You used to own a car here. You owe us money. Um, so I go back to my dorm and I sit down bracing myself to open uh, some bad news and I open it and it's a check for $25 and some change and no explanation whatsoever. I know that they go to the nth degree to find you when you owe them money, but I don't know who got inspired to find me there in Alberta and say, let's send that guy $25. But they did, and in one day, my whole debt was taken care of by God. He is faithful. Amen? You need to share that with others in your own life. So, concerning recession and the faithfulness of God, as we move into a few more passages, I invite you to consider with me lions, horses, 
and linguistic mirrors. What do we mean by that? Flip with me to Psalm chapter 34. Psalm 34. I want you to see this. Lions, <clears throat> horses, and linguistic mirrors. Just a few passages to help encourage your heart. Psalm 34 verse 10 says this. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Is that not good? I want you just to think about lions for a moment. Uh, generally, when we're thinking of lions, we're thinking these are powerful beasts. These are impressive animals. And the psalmist is pointing something out. Even the most powerful and impressive beings on earth can orient their lives around seeking out provision. And what happens to them? They grow weak and hungry. And so the psalmist is saying, I mean, if that's what it's like for lions, imagine what it can be like for us as humans. You can build your life around seeking provision, or you can seek God and lack nothing. That's good news for us. Flip one page earlier to, well, it's one page in my Bible, Psalm 33. So we think of lions, and they remind us that though we as humans might be powerful, have influence, maybe we're even impressive, we will grow weak and hungry. However, if we learn how to seek God, we will lack nothing. In Psalm 33, we learn of a different animal, Beginning in verse 17, it says this, a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. You know what's so ironic here is that the psalmist is writing something that I'm sure caught the attention of his original audience. The psalmist says the horse is a vain hope for deliverance. The reality was in the ancient Near East, the horse was a great hope for deliverance. And so his readers or hearers are thinking, what? A horse? You know, any army, any nation was strengthened by its horsepower. And, and here the psalmist is saying there's something even greater than horsepower. You see, as humans, we think that horsepower is what matters. He carries on to say, despite all of its great strength, it cannot save. In our day and age, we might look at it this way. Money is a vain hope for provision. Despite all of its ability... It cannot provide or it cannot save you. Verse 18 says this, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who trust him or worship him with awe, on those who hope in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, in our faith, life, and ministry journey, we've experienced church planting, which was so exciting and very challenging, and, and we were so grateful for all the ways God grew trust as we trusted through hard times with him. And there was one time in our church planting journey that we had held a significant event. We felt led by God to do so. It was a conference, and it went, it, it went wonderfully. It was amazing. It was very strong for our church. It was very strong for the community. Uh, the only problem was that at the end of the event, the offerings, you know, I had taken a chapter to Jesus offering a 10 book, and so I had failed miserably as well there too, and the offerings were terrible, and so we had a $5,000 um, gap in paying for all the costs associated with the event itself. And so Monday morning rolls around, and I know today I need to meet with our bookkeeper, today I need to look at our church bank accounts, today we need to make some decisions on which checks get issued and which don't, including our own paycheck. And um, so I was like, that's, that's going to be discouraging, 
So I'm going to spend some time reading scripture before I uh, read the bank statements. And I, I didn't want to deny the realities of what the bank statement said. I just thought maybe there's something else that can help me feel a little more encouraged before I go to that. And so, as it turned out, I was in Psalm 33 that day, and I spent time thinking about this idea of horses being a vain hope for deliverance. And I just started thinking through in our world all the different things that are horses for us today. And, and for many of us, the horses are dollars. And the more dollars in a bank account, the better or more secure we might feel, and the less that are there, the less secure we might feel. And it's just this weird feeling to think through, like, oh, I wish there were more horses in the pen, <laughs> in the bank account. Then I'd feel better about a lot of things here. But there wasn't. And some of you have heard me told, tell this story before. I spent a lot of time just dwelling on that passage. I, I journaled, I thought. And I, I legitimately came to a place in that moment where I thought, you know what, in a few moments I am going to look at our church bank account, I'm going to have to make some very difficult decisions. But at the end of the day, it's not about the horses that are in the count, it's about the God who's with us. And so my heart genuinely became assured in God as our source and our supply, regardless of what the numbers were going to say, I was like, I can face this with trust. And then, as I read there, after it says the horses of vain hope for deliverance, it says, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who worship him with awe, those whose hope is in his unfailing love. And I thought, you know what, as a church family, our hope is in his unfailing love, not how much is in the church bank account. And so, at the time, because small church, church planter, I did all the things for the church, it seemed at the time, and so I thought, well, I'm the social media person for the church, so I just thought, I'm going to make a declaration for our church. So I went on our church's social media, and I said, according to the scripture there, our eyes and our hope is in God and his unfailing love. And I typed that and posted it. And then I went to the other social media account and posted the same thing. And when I went to the third and posted it, my phone buzzed in that moment, and I thought, well, I'm kind of done my devotional time, so... I guess I got an email or something like that. So I go on over to my email, and that instant, when my phone buzzed, it was a notification that a donor from a different province decided in that moment to give $5,000 to our church. And so that need we were facing was taken immediately in that moment. And you know what my response was? Not thanks. I was upset at God. <laughs> because I had been so stressed through the weekend about the $5,000. <laughs> I thought, well, God, you could have talked to that person, and thank you that they gave that, but what if they had given that the day before? I would have woken up feeling great about today, but I would have missed out on placing my trust in God. I would have been trusting in horses. So what are the horses in your life? What are the horses in your family? What if some of them disappear? What if some of them die? It tests where our trust really is. And when scripture says a horse is a vain hope for deliverance, it's not saying, get rid of the horses, they're all evil. It's just saying, where's your, where's your hope? Where's your trust? And so when the news or a politician or an economist talks about a recession, where's your hope? Where's your trust? And who's going to be faithful? Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26. This is following the story of Abraham. Remember we thought a little bit about Abraham earlier? He's, God's promised a covenant family is going to be birthed through you. And a miracle occurs. And Abraham and his wife give birth. And they have Isaac. It's their child. And Isaac's story in scripture is a little more brief. Um, there's a lot of focus that's given to Abraham. And there's a lot of focus that's given to Jacob, who becomes Israel. But Isaac's not, not entirely overlooked. He's just sort of seen in some ways as the fulfillment of a promise. But I want, you, I want you to see something with me, something significant that happens in his life. 
says this in verse 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land. That's bad news. That sounds like recession for their economy, doesn't it? Uh, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. Wow, this sounds like recession upon recession. Bad news for Isaac and his crew, isn't it? Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Uh, why is God saying this to him? In this time, in this moment, I mean, Egypt's where it all could happen. Egypt was irrigated regularly by the mighty Nile River. I don't know if you ever look at satellite imagery of different places around the world, but today even, if you look at satellite imagery of Egypt, you can tell without seeing the water, you can tell exactly where the Nile River is because there's desert everywhere in Egypt except this flourishing, snaking line that heads up towards the Mediterranean Ocean. Where the Nile is, there's life and there's provision. The Nile, or Egypt, in uh, the ancient Near East, that was Fort McMurray. That was going to Alberta for reduced taxes and oil money. And so God is saying to Isaac, listen, I know you want to go to Fort McMurray. I know you want to go to Alberta. I'm telling you to stay. And then he says this, live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. Again, when we talk about giving and finances in our church, We don't give to get blessed. We give because of how God has blessed us. But we must pay attention to two things. Number one, God wants to bless his people. And number two, blessing is defined by how he defines it, not how we do. We don't get to give our Christmas list of which blessings we want and say, well, sorry, you gave me a nice family, but I'm actually looking for this car and this uh, yacht as well. Uh, You can let your wants and needs be known to God as well, but pay attention to what matters most in life, and that's where God is blessing you, in faith, in relationships, in things that have an eternal potential. God says, I will bless you. So verse 6, what does Isaac do? So Isaac stayed. He stayed in Gerar. Now, Scripture carries on and says a period of time passed. We don't know how long it was. So maybe the famine wrapped up, but here's the bad news for people who lived in that particular area. Even if a famine wrapped up, why was famine caused? Because of drought. And where Isaac was staying was known to have 10 days of rain a year. Contrast that with us. Some of, somehow there's some weeks we've found ways to get 10 days of rain in a week. It's, it's magical. It's a new miracle. Imagine living in a part of the world where you get 10 days the whole year. And God said, you should live there. So that's where he's living. Listen listen to verse 12. Look at this with me. So he's staying in Gerar, and it says this, Isaac planted crops in that land. Did that make a lot of sense to do? (laughs) You're living in a part of the world that gets 10 days of rain. They had figured out well systems. If you follow the story, there's interruptions in that too. So there was a sense of irrigation, but there were better places in the world that you could live and sow your seed. But Isaac knew something. God's told me to be here. I am going to be here. I'm facing a lot of challenges. I have seed. It's a massive risk for me to plant it because either he's still in a drought or he's definitely living in a place with only 10 days rain. He could lose all the seed. He decides to sow it, and what happens? That same year, he reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. 
Now, lions, horses, linguistic mirrors. I don't have time to unpack this for you, but for those of you that like spending time looking for patterns in scripture, read Genesis 12, Genesis 20. Read the story of Abraham and then read Genesis 26 and just some of the details of Isaac. There's something going on. Moses is the one who's writing. He's penning the story of Genesis for us. And he's including important sort of hidden behind the scene details. As he talks about certain highlights or details in Isaac's life, what we learn if we pay attention is they mirror things from Abraham's life. And in the grand story of a God who does something significant in Abraham's life, and we learn a lot about Jacob's life, some of us think, well, Isaac's sort of an afterthought. He's just a fulfilled promise in the middle. No, he's not. Look at the mirroring that's going on. Why is that there? To show that here's the first generation after a promise given to Abraham, and God is faithful in the same way to this generation too. There's something beautiful about the linguistic mirror because we're learning weight. God's blessing and his promises don't skip a generation to the next great story. Some of you live a life where you wonder, I think I'm in the in-between. I think my children are awesome, my ancestors are awesome, I think God's forgotten about me. And the linguistic mirror says, no, he hasn't. He will be faithful to every generation, not every other. And so my question to you is, is there faithfulness in your history? Has God been faithful to others ahead of you? Absolutely, he has. So regardless of what unfolds in the world around us, and it could get tough with recession, it could. Will God be faithful to you? Absolutely, he will. This week, um, I, got a, uh, I received communication that there was someone um, dying in the hospital, and I'm not always able to respond to that, and they're connected to somebody in our church. And uh, so I had the opportunity to go visit our local hospital and sit with a woman who is days away from death. And I don't know how you process what those moments might be like for you one day. Um, as I get a little older, I think a little bit more about that kind of stuff. And so I'm sitting across from this woman, and it was remarkable. She's lost a lot of her hair. I'm sure if I had the opportunity to know her whole story, she might feel like this wouldn't be some of the most humiliating, difficult undignifying moments of her life she sits there you know what there was such life in her eyes her skin looked like she was dying her lungs are full of tumors and the reality is she will pass soon she came to faith in Jesus just in just in recent years and you know what we spent time talking about recession no we didn't talk about recession I know many of you are surprised by that. We talked about money. No. We talked about possessions. You know what? We didn't talk about any of that. She wouldn't stop talking about the Lord. She wouldn't stop talking about scriptures. She wouldn't stop talking about her family. And I don't know about you. We work so hard in life to accumulate a lot of things, don't we? But all of us are going to be on a deathbed one day. And do you want to sit there and talk to your pastor about all the things? Do you want to talk with them about, do you think there's going to be a recession this year? What's going to happen? Paul said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. The reality is, friends, all of us are going to die. And all the things we've scrambled 
to get at in this lifetime and built our lives towards, all those things are taken from us at death, including the things that even matter like family and breath itself. But you know what will never be taken from you? Christ. Never ever. And there's a good, I think, hopeful word for all of us in this. That when it all comes down to the final moments, we do really consider what matters most. And it's helpful for us, I think, in these moments to consider that now. Would you stand with me? So will there be a recession? We don't know. Do your homework. Be prepared. I think the bigger and more important questions are not, is there going to be a recession? The bigger and more important questions are, who's your shepherd? Who's your source? Who's your supply? Who are you trusting? Who will be faithful? Father, thank you that you are faithful to us. Thank you that you have the ability to take the most difficult-looking circumstances that might surround us, a crowd of 10,000 people that somehow not need to be fed, and you see possibility in a heavenly realm that can overwhelm what's going on on earth, that you can talk to somebody who's living in a place as dry as a desert and say, plant your seed and stay, and you provide. You are the God that can turn things around. So regardless of what our future looks like, we place ourselves and all that is with us in your hands again, thanking you that you're a provider, that you're faithful, and if things get even more difficult around us, you will be faithful. You can turn things around, but even if you won't, you'll carry us through it all and you'll faithfully carry us into your presence for eternity. And so we give you praise now in Jesus' name. Let's sing them as a declaration over our lives. You turn morning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. And you turn shame into glory. You're the
Alrighty, let's pray. Put your hand over your heart. Father, I thank you for each one gathered here today and with us online. You are faithful to us, and we welcome the work of your faithfulness to any of us who know what it's like to have hope sag and feel low or to, to be discouraged because of things we hear in the news or politics or from economists. May we be anchored to your word and your truth. And now, as we go into your world on your mission, we declare our dependence upon you. We need your power, your presence, and one another to bring your message and ministry into the everyday stuff of everyday life this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. I hope to see you back here tonight. At what time? 6.30 for our prayer and worship evening.